0: Let me ask you a question, it's one of the thinking questions, do you ever wonder if other people see your faults as clearly as you see theirs? If you think about it, that can be a terrifying question because other people's faults are so obvious. Do other people struggle to see their own faults as much as you struggle to see yours? That's another question, not quite as convicting, but just as true. Both of these questions really point to the fact that we struggle to see our weaknesses, don't we? We struggle to see them. In fact, they're blind spots. Very often they're blind spots. Remember the funhouse mirrors of yesteryear? We don't really have those anymore. But you go down sometimes. You go down to the state fair in the fall. They'll have a funhouse you can walk through, and you'll you'll still see these mirrors. They're great. And you stand in front of these mirrors that you know that are wavy, and they make you look wavy. You know the 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 the, the head is you know is huge, and the the middle part is real skinny. You know, it's kind of nice to see that for a change, isn't it? And uh, we laugh when we look at the funhouse mirrors because they stretch reality. It's our reflection. There's no doubt. What we're seeing is us, and yet it isn't. It's a distorted view of ourselves, but it is us. You know, there's a similar thing now that we have with smartphones (laughs) called the, uh, what are they called? uh, They're called warp apps. Have you, have you ever used a warp app? A warp app is an app that warps your image, and they are hilarious. Remember one time our girls and Kathy and I were at a, a waiting for a wedding to get started. We were kind of bored, and one of the girls pulled out their smartphone with a warp app. A warp app is where you—I don't think—I yeah, I got my phone. Of course, I do. Everyone's always got their phone. We'd shower with these things if we could. <laughs> But you know, a warp app. I don't. I don't have one to show you. But it's like when you do a selfie, you know, and you're kind of, you're kind of, you know, doing the selfie thing, and it distorts what you see, and it puts like a hat on you, or it puts a a dog nose on you, and it knows how to do it, which is kind of scary. But it's called a warp app, and it totally changes the way you look. It's like a funhouse mirror on your smartphone, and it's funny. But it's not really us. Today we take a lot of selfies, and if you see a group of friends that are huddled around a smartphone laughing, it's probably because they're looking at a warp app. But imagine if the warp app became the only way that you looked at yourself. Imagine if the funhouse mirror was the only way that you looked at yourself. And I don't just mean physically but spiritually. Because we all take selfies, Uh, we have to. We have to have self-evaluations or we would never grow. We have to have moments where we take a good, honest look at ourselves. But honestly, a a problem that we face a lot of times is that we we look warped. We look at ourselves intentionally in mirrors that show us skinny and mirrors that show us the way we want to look rather than the way we really look. I'll never forget one time a, uh, an individual – There's a guy who sat me down and his goal was to basically rake me over the coals. And so I sat there and listened to what he had to say to me. And when he was done, he got up and left, and I sat there just sort of dumbfounded. Um, And I guess what mostly dumbfounded me was because his criticism mirrored the very flaws that he manifested in spades. (laughs) And in censuring me, he basically revealed his own warped selfie. And it wasn't funny. I think because we're Christians, a lot of times we think we've got it all figured out. After all, we know the Word of God. We've got the whole Word of God, we read it, we know it, but often our familiarity with God's Word doesn't give us a supernatural ability to see all of the truth, especially regarding ourselves. We see ourselves often through the rose-colored glasses of our motives, not the reality of who we really are, but who we want to be, not who we are. And our familiarity with God's Word sometimes can do the exact opposite that we want it to do. If our self-awareness gets warped and we see ourselves far differently than we really are, then it dramatically affects how we hear God's Word. So I'd like us to walk through this passage today in Mark chapter 6 and ask a question how to hear from God. How can we hear from God, but particularly in such a way that we have a realistic view of ourselves, and it's not warped? And there's a couple of principles that this, oh, about half of this chapter here we'll look at, teaches, it's a long chapter, that give us a great insight into our own hearts. Mark chapter 6, remember where we've come so far in the book of Mark? just a quick survey, real quick. I mean, Jesus shows up on the scene, announces that the kingdom of God is at hand, but that Israel needs to repent, harking all the way back to Deuteronomy 28 to 30, where the whole, the whole way that God had a relationship with Israel was based on whether or not they would repent, that they would turn their mindset away from themselves and, and instead turn to God and God's plan. And that repentance, John the Baptist came on the scene with the same message saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he had people baptized, and then Jesus begins that same, continues that same message. But the problem is Israel didn't want to repent. They didn't want to change. They didn't want a Messiah that would, that would point to their sin, and he was just a good preacher. They liked the Messiah that healed them and that would, in their mind, squash Rome and drive out the Gentiles. And instead, Jesus is showing mercy, not only to uh, Israel, but also to Gentiles that we've seen uh, in the, first, the last couple of chapters. So, Mark chapter 6, Jesus heads back home, back to his hometown of Nazareth, and um, you could say that he walks into the funhouse. Look at verse 1. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, this is Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, this wasn't Jesus' first time in Nazareth. Uh, he's preached in the Nazareth synagogue before, actually. And the last time that he came to Nazareth and preached in the synagogue, he claimed to be the Messiah, read from Isaiah, and said, this is, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, his, his own people decided, we'll just throw you off the cliff, because we don't want to hear that. And Jesus escaped from their midst, or left their midst, and relocated his base of operations to Capernaum. But now Jesus comes back and he goes back to the synagogue. I mean, it's almost like a James Dean movie or something where this, you know, the town rebel comes back into town and boldly walks into the town square and begins to talk again. Jesus goes back to the very synagogue where before they wanted to throw him off the cliff, and he begins to teach, and in such a way that they cannot deny the power that he has. But once again, they are offended by him, and they are offended because they know him. Isn't this the carpenter? This guy built my kitchen table. What kind of a what kind of gall does he have to walk in here, come back here, after claiming to be the Messiah? I think I've shared with you before about family reunions. I. I um, I'll never forget this one lady that I'd never seen before in my life or I thought I had, and she came up to me and literally patted me on the head and said, Little Wayne, it's so good to see you. You don't remember me. But 35 years ago, you know, blah, 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 she was telling me, no, I don't remember you because 35 years ago, you looked a lot different too. <laughs> because she couldn't take me seriously as a man because she knew me as a boy. That's what Jesus was dealing with here. This is, this is the carpenter. This is the son of Mary and the brother, and, and the brothers are all listed here. James, interestingly, James and Judas are the two whose New Testament books, uh, epistles, uh, have the same name. So we've got two of uh, Jesus' own half-brothers here who would eventually contribute to the New Testament, and his sisters also. So Jesus had not only brothers, but also sisters, and we know them. And we know you, Jesus. You're just Jesus. You're just little Yeshua, cute little Yeshua who never does anything wrong. And you come back into town and, and have the gall to do something fabulous. And Jesus makes a statement here that is worth, uh, worth really considering. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except – now let's just pause there for a second and and say that not in the negative but in the positive. A prophet has honor everywhere except in his hometown and among among his own relatives and in his own household. Notice how he narrows the scope. In his hometown, Nazareth, among his own relatives – and in his own household, even his own family. And we have seen this, uh, these three different levels in Jesus' ministry so far. You remember in Jesus' ministry so far, his religious, the religious leaders say Jesus is possessed by Satan, his own family wants to take him away, they say he's lost his mind, and now he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, and they reject him because he's the local yokel, they can't take him seriously. Jesus says a prophet is not without honor. I don't know if you've noticed but it's always the guest speaker who says something profound. It's the expert at the conference that you attend that changes your life. And the and the further the better. Because if you know them, well, you know, they can't be that smart cuz I know them. I know you. You know? You can't be that remarkable if I know you. And this is what Jesus experiences. And never again in the Book of Mark do you see Jesus enter a synagogue and teach. He confines his teaching at this point, from this point on to being outside to those who will listen. And notice what he says here in verse five and six. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around he was going around the villages teaching. It says that he, he could do no miracle and he wondered at their unbelief. The fact where it says that he wondered at the at their unbelief, it doesn't mean that he he goes, Hmm, I wonder about that. But it's the it's the word that means he marveled. You can just picture him putting his head in his hands and just shaking his head, marveling. Why won't you believe? In fact, this is the only time in the Gospels that it speaks of Jesus marveling at something, and it comes in reference to his own hometown and their stubborn lack of belief in Christ. It wasn't Jesus' lack of power when it says he could do no miracle there. It wasn't that he couldn't in the sense of ability, but that he couldn't in the sense that he refused to perform. The miracles and the message went hand in hand. In fact, the purpose of the miracles was to prove that the message is true. And so if they're not going to believe the message, then we're not going to do miracles. And as a result, there were those in Nazareth who weren't healed because they didn't believe in Jesus' words. Let me give you a principle here that is true, It was true not only 2,000 years ago up in Galilee in Nazareth, but it's true right here where you live today. In fact, you could, you could write your address right in the margin because it's true there. And here it is, a challenge to you. Be willing to hear the truth even when the messenger is familiar. Be willing to hear the truth, even when the messenger is familiar. And there is a a hidden term in the word familiar that makes it even harder. Family. Family. I heard about a young preacher who preached his first sermon, and he felt like, did a great job. In fact, I knocked it out of the park. On the way home, he's driving with his wife and he looks over and he says, Hun, how many great preachers do you think there are in the world? And she said, There's one less than you think. (laughs) And unfortunately, he probably thought, Really, I wonder who that is. (laughs) Be willing to hear the truth even when the messenger is familiar. You know, I think it's hard for us to hear sometimes to discern what needs changing in our lives because we have a distorted view. We look at ourselves through the warp app. We see our reflection in the funhouse mirror. We look at what we want to see when we see ourselves, and we don't see the reality. The good news about those who know us is that they see it Like the question I asked up front, it's a lot easier for you to see other people's faults than it is for you to see ourselves. Well, the bad news is the same is true for them. They can see you a lot clearer sometimes than you can see yourself. The people in Nazareth absolutely refused to believe in Jesus because he was the carpenter, because he was familiar. And there is truth that God wants you to hear. Not necessarily just straight from the scripture, but observations that those closest to you are going to make. They're going to tell you whether you want to hear it or not. And pride will get in the way of you becoming a better person. Of us becoming better people. I definitely need to include myself. But you know, there's another twist to this truth. And that is that like Jesus' own people, we we're so familiar with him that we take his words for granted. There's not a story about Christ we haven't heard. There's not a sermon he's preached that's recorded, that we don't know, maybe even memorized. And that's the problem. We've heard it all, and we want to know what new things Jesus had to tell me. You know, we get into the the beatitudes or even the passage that we're reading here in Mark, and it's gonna Let's see what time it is here. It's 11.20. We'll do lunch at uh, Jason's Deli. What's next? No, no. You're familiar with this story, but don't let your familiarity with Jesus give you the same error that those in Nazareth had. Don't let your familiarity with Christ let you sidestep the life-changing truth that he wants to communicate with you. And not just here, but when you're reading the word on your own, how easy it is. You've got a busy day ahead of you, you've got a to-do list that's a mile long, You're, you didn't sit down to start reading your Bible as early as you wanted, and so you get to a passage that looks real familiar, and you skate over it, and you slam your Bible shut, check the box, I've spent time with God, and you move on. And the, the warped reflection of your own heart never changes. Be willing to hear the truth even when the messenger is familiar. Don't let your familiarity with Jesus keep you from allowing him to change your life. He wants to do it. He's willing to do it. But you've got to be willing to let him do it. I think it's hard for us to discern sometimes what needs changing about ourselves because of our distorted, per- our distorted perception. And our problem is that we're judging our heart with our heart. Think about that. How do, you know, how do you know what needs changing? Because you're looking at yourself with yourself. Sometimes it takes another set of eyeballs looking at yourself to give you uh, the truth. Those in Nazareth, in Nazareth had the perfect person talking with them. Think about that. The problem wasn't Jesus' message, it wasn't his manner of delivery. It wasn't what he was wearing that day. It wasn't how he had his hair styled. It wasn't his accent. There was nothing wrong with Christ. He was perfect down to a whisker. The problem wasn't with the messenger. It was with the hearer. Now, sometimes, well, I'll say all the time, it's true that there are problems with the messenger. There's problems with me. Just ask my sweetheart. But she won't tell you because she, she loves me so much. <laughs> <laughs> but there are problems with me. And any preacher that you hear, there are problems. And I'll tell you what, I deal with it, and I'm sure you deal with it too. But if you've got a problem with the preacher, you don't hear the message. It's hard. It's hard to look past what you know in order to hear what God wants you to hear. It's really a challenge. But you've got to do it because that's all you have. If you're going to listen to a message from somebody, all you have is an imperfect person talking to you, and so you've got to look past that person and look at the truth that's being communicated. Um, Let me ask you a question. What is Jesus working to change in your life right now? Sometimes your familiarity with Christ can be so prevalent that you just think, you know, I pretty much got this nailed. What is he working to change in your life right now? I hope that at any given point, maybe not it's on the tip of your tongue, but if you sat and thought about it for a good 30 seconds, what would you write down? Here is what I know Jesus is working on in my heart. Here is something that, as I've been reading through the Word, that I have been deeply convicted about. Is the Word deeply convicting you of anything? If not, you're probably reading it way too fast. You're probably reading it in such a way that you're, you feel so familiar that you got it down. Um, our challenge is not information. Our challenge is transformation. Like Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction is not knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. The goal of your Bible reading is love. Sometimes I think we think our goal is spiritual maintenance instead of spiritual growth. Jesus didn't die for us so that we could stay the same way we are. He died for you so that you could change. He died to completely pay for your sins so that grace now is the foundation. Um, I love that verse in that section in Titus that says, the grace of God has appeared. So there's, there's the verb, boom, the grace of God has appeared. And then the participle or the what comes off of that that, that gives us sort of the instruction now because this has happened, what do we do? The grace of God has appeared instructing us to deny godliness. Grace is the foundation by which our our entire walk with God is settled. Grace is the safety net as you walk the tightrope every day in your life. You're going to fall off. You know what? Grace will catch you. It's okay. Grace gives you the safety net to allow you to learn to obey God. What is Jesus working right now to change in your life? Well, Jesus leaves his hometown and now heads out of town. And as he does, he summons his apostles and gives them an assignment. Look at verse 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. That's good. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, or wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing many with oil uh, many with oil, and, went, and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Jesus sends his 12 out. Notice in verse uh, 1 that we looked at, Jesus went to his hometown and his disciples followed him. So they observed this. They observed what happened in Nazareth. And now in verse 7, Jesus sends the 12 who observed Jesus being rejected out, and he gives them instruction. He basically tells them, don't pack anything. I'm sending you out in a context of lack so that you will learn to depend on God. And we're really going to see this uh, at next week as we look at the feeding of the 5,000. The 12 come back and now Jesus gives them an application. Have you learned to depend on God? But that's next week. So he, he sets them up for that by sending them out in a context of lack don't take anything. You're going to depend on God in this little mission trip that I'm sending you on. And when you go and when you enter a house, stay there. Better offer comes along. You don't take it. You stay there until you leave town. And if that place doesn't listen to you, like Nazareth, as a testimony against them, shake the dust off the soles of your feet. Give them something to think about. You've told them the truth, and if they're not going to accept the truth, shake the Shake the dust off your feet and move along. You've done what you need to do in that town, and now it's up to them to respond. And notice that it says that they were casting out many demons and were anointing many with oil. Um, Jesus, in verse 7, gave them authority to do this. The authority of the apostle, of the sent ones, are those who are able to cast out demons and do these miraculous signs. The sign gifts had a purpose. The gift of, uh, of the Spirit of God within these men to be able to do these miracles had a purpose for this amazing transitional period in God's grand plan that came right alongside the message and it validated the message of Christ that the kingdom of God was at hand. And notice in verse 12 it says, they went out and they preached that men should repent. It's the same message that Jesus had had preached all along, and it's the same message that John the Baptist had preached. And I think the word they repent, is meant to cue our ears to not only Jesus, but also John, because and actually in the very next verses that follow, John's name is, uh, is brought up for good reason. So let's look at that. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it. And let me just pause. King Herod. This is King Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Antipas was a tetrarch, a uh, a ruler of a quarter of Herod's kingdom, and of Herod the Great's kingdom. Antipas ruled in Galilee. So he heard about it. And as a result, he heard of it, for his name had become known. Keep, keep reading in verse 14. Now and the people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he's Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Now, this is the first time we've heard about the beheading of John in the book of Mark. We heard about John's arrest back in chapter 1, and now we're going to see sort of a flashback that Mark gives us why John was arrested. John was arrested in chapter 1, now we find out why. Not only was he arrested, but, but we find out he's beheaded. So look, let's continue reading here this uh, flashback, in verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip because he had married her. So let me pause for a second and give you a little background. On a journey to Rome one time, Antipas journeyed uh, to Rome, and Herod Philip's wife, Herodias, uh, Herod Herod Antipas fell for. And Herodias also fell for Antipas, and the resulting time that passed, each of the two divorced their spouses and married each other and so now antipas has his brother's wife and there's been no reason for the divorce and remarriage other than they just wanted to and so look at what john what john says in verse 18 john the baptist john had been saying to herod it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife herodias had a grudge against him against john and wanted to put him to death and could not do so for herod was afraid of john knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So Herodias, you know, used to power, used to marrying men with power, marries Herod Antipas, and John the Baptist, this upstart prophet, uh, You know, says it's not lawful for you, and he's telling, he's selling, saying this in public. Well, Herodias is just thinking, Look, let's just kill him, that'll solve it. But Antipas doesn't want to do it because Antipas knows that he's a righteous and holy man, and so Antipas kept him safe by imprisoning him. So it it was sort of like, I'm gonna appease, I'll tell you what, hon, let's put him in prison. Well, what Antipas is thinking, let's keep him safe because somehow. Um, my wife is going to want to kill this guy, and he's a righteous man. I know he's a righteous man. Of course, he can, talks about my sin all the time, but I enjoy listening to him. He's kind of a good good preacher. So Herod Antipas, he's an interesting interesting fellow. Um, the historian Josephus tells us that this event that we're about to look at occurred at a place called Machairus. Machiris is east of the Dead Sea. If you think of the Dead Sea in your mind, you've got Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River coming down, and the Dead Sea. And you've got on one side, about halfway down, uh, on the Israel side, you've got Masada. And just opposite that, in the modern country of Jordan today, you have the fortress of Machiris. And you can go there today. In fact, uh, I'll be leading a tour this fall to Jordan, and we're going to go to Machiris where John the Baptist uh, was beheaded. And it's sort of a bleak and depressing place because you it's a bit of a walk to get up on the top where this event occurred, but traditionally John was imprisoned in a cave somewhere around that area, and around that area there are many caves. In fact, we went and walked through a couple of them, and I couldn't imagine being imprisoned there for probably about a year. John was probably imprisoned about a year before he was ultimately uh, beheaded. It was a bleak place, and Mark doesn't give us the account of of John's struggle with doubt in which he sent to Jesus and asked for some affirmation, are are you really Christ? But you can understand why. It was a a hard place to be imprisoned. And he was imprisoned at and but up on top was Herod Antipas' palace, and you can go to to Machiris today and see the footprint of that palace, and you can see the footprint of the courtyard where this event would have occurred. So Herodias wanted to kill John, couldn't do it until verse 21, a strategic day came. When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, and when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom. It's probably a hyperbole. Uh, it's a common phrase. Ask half of my kingdom. You know, whatever you want. It's, it didn't mean half his kingdom. It, it means, basically, you name it, you got it. I'll give you whatever you like. And notice that it says in verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, so pause just there for a second. The strategic day, verse 21, implies that Herodias saw this as a strategic moment. The wife saw this as a strategic moment and probably sent the daughter in there because who did the daughter run to the moment the opportunity came was to her mom. What should I say? What should I, how should I answer? And the mother says, what should I ask ask for? She said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in in a hurry, verse 25, to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head, And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. You ever wonder what she did with his head? Probably took it in and talked to it a little, you know? We can can imagine the conversations, but I won't go there. But... What a sad, a sad lot for John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the great prophet, the forerunner of the Christ, the one who, who prepared Israel for Jesus, and this is what happens to him. Well, this text isn't here just to kind of give us a backstory and a bit of interest on how did John die and why, but it gives us this to show if this is what happened to the forerunner, what do you think they're going to do to the one he was talking about? But, you know, in spite of the fact that that John died and the one that he prepared to come after was next, it didn't shut up Jesus. Jesus kept on preaching. Jesus would die, and the same pattern would follow. It didn't shut up his followers. It frenzied them because of the resurrection to share the good news of the kingdom. Herod Antipas felt tremendous guilt over this and restlessness because he killed the one who told him the truth. He knew it was the truth. John was a righteous man. Herod believed it. And we saw back in verse 16, Herod's paranoia, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. So Herod can't get this out of his mind. He's, he's frustrated over it because he knew that what he did was wrong. Well, let me give you another principle here from this part of the text. I mentioned be willing to hear the truth even when the messenger is familiar. Here's the second principle. Be willing to hear the truth even when the message is regarding your sin. Be willing to hear the truth even when the message is regarding your sin. John the Baptist spoke it like it was. He said it right out. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And what did they do? They got rid of the messenger. I read about some uh, medical missionaries that went and um, – I don't remember where this obscure village was, but they, were, they went in, in part, not only to share the gospel, but also to figure out why these people were dying. And they traced it down to the water they were drinking. It, uh, it had these you know uh, amoeba or whatever in it that were causing disease and death. And so they, they actually figured it out, and they brought the chief in. And showed him, under the microscope, these microbes that were basically in the water and killing them. And the missionaries came in, the doctors came in the next day to their laboratory, and it was completely destroyed. And all of the microscopes were smashed. Because, of course, it's the microscope that's the problem. The microscope showed me my problem. I'll destroy the microscope, problem solved. We don't want to hear the truth when the message is regarding our sin, and so we get rid, we try to get rid of the one who is communicating it. That's what Herod and Herodias did with John the Baptist, and yet the truth didn't go away. It didn't go away. Pride basically kept Herod Antipas from saying, wait a minute, stop. I never should have said that, and no, I'm not doing that. I am not killing this righteous man. In fact, in fact, uh, what we're doing is wrong. We shouldn't I mean Herod didn't go there. Because of his pride, because of his dinner guests, because he wanted to save face, because he didn't want to have to deal with Herodias after everyone went home that night, it was easier to get rid of the messenger than it was to do what was right. Be willing to hear the truth even when the message is regarding your sin. What happens when you're reading the Word, or when you're listening to a message, or you've got the radio going, or you listen to a song, that there's something that all of a sudden the Spirit of God goes, you, and you know that it's talking about you. You can't escape it. Immediately you realize this text is talking about a particular sin in my life, and I can't escape it. I know it's the Spirit of God talking to me in this moment. What do you do? What do you do in that moment? Well, you don't want to do what Herod did. You don't want to just slam it shut and and somehow get around it, but instead you want to be willing to hear it. Because there's a really important distinction between becoming a person who is weaker and a person who is more aware of your weakness. One is a growth and the other is a step back. If you're aware of your weakness, it's a step forward because it gives you the privilege of repenting. You know, if we could uncover the manhole over our hearts pull that cover back and look look down into the sewer of our sin, we would see a tar pit a mile deep. And I'm not saying that we're – I don't mean to say, you know, hey, you're a terrible person, though you are, and I am. But my point is, that's just what we see. Imagine what God sees. When we look at our hearts, we look at it, remember, often with our hearts. We look at it with, in the funhouse mirror. And sometimes the, the most honest that we can be, if we want to be the most honest about who we are, we're only going to see a mile deep. That's the best we can do when we're being honest. God sees 10 miles deep. And the good news is even though sometimes he will show us the sin that we did not know was there. He does it in a context of grace so that when he shows it to you, he can, right along with that revelation, say, It's okay. I forgive you. Jesus died for that. I'm not showing you this to shame you, I'm showing you this to make you more like my son. And the good news is that grace reverses our focus when we come face to face with our sin. When God shows you something in the text, Or somehow he convicts you of sin in your heart, it's not to shame you, but it's to give you appreciation, a greater appreciation for his grace. The greater your realization of your sin, the greater your appreciation of God's grace. God's grace makes it safe for us to see ourselves because we know that regardless of what we find, God will never reject us. Let me say that again. God's grace makes it safe for us to see ourselves, because we know that regardless of what we find, God will never reject us. When he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his holy son, Jesus Christ. I served as an executive for 12 years, and I had the responsibility every year for every employee to give an annual review. And I made it my habit not only to review them but to challenge them to review me and to say tell me how i can be a better boss tell me what you need that you don't have tell me what's driving you nuts that i'm doing so that you know i can be aware of it you know what they tell me And sometimes it was really hard to hear. Like I can think of one in particular that was very hard to hear. And I can compare it to nothing else, to nothing other than, you know, like when you've been at a party, and you had dinner and then there's this time of fellowship after a party, and then you, you go to the bathroom after you've been talking to somebody for you know 30 minutes and you look in the mirror and there's chicken in your teeth. <laughs> you've been talking to everybody and smiling and laughing. And you got chicken in your teeth. (laughs) And you know they saw it. That's how it felt. That's how it feels. But again, the good news is that God's grace makes it safe for us to see ourselves. Because we know that regardless of what we see, God's not going to reject us. Isn't that great? He's not going to reject us. So be willing to hear the truth even when the messenger is familiar. Sometimes they know you best. Be willing to hear the truth even when the message is regarding your sin because God's grace gives a context. It makes it safe to hear the truth. You know, I read someplace that most private planes crash um, because pilots, often of private planes, uh, go off their senses based instead of their instruments. Our senses can deceive us. You ever tried to find something and to, and to turn out, all of a sudden it was right underneath your nose the whole time? Honey, where are my glasses? They're on your head. Or have you ever worked all day in the yard or something, and you come in, Hey, hon, how about a big hug? Shower first. You don't realize you stink because you've been with your stink So long. (laughs) Now, our olfactory sense kind of kicks in, doesn't it? And you don't realize, I stink. (laughs) I remember once Kathy and my brother-in-law named Mark, his son came up to him one time and said, Dad, your face stinks. That was a little boy's way way of saying your breath smells. We don't know. How many of you right now are confident that your breath doesn't stink? It's the person next to you doesn't have the heart to tell you. But the reality is that's, the way, that's who we are. Um, be willing to hear the truth, because you won't grow otherwise, and neither will I. It's difficult, but we've got, uh, we've got to do it. It's only a foolish person that thinks they've already arrived, and that's because, in a way, they have. They'll make no progress. Um, Be willing to hear the truth even when the messenger is familiar and even when the message is regarding your sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the safety net of grace. Then we can live our lives of clear imperfection, of clear uh, fault. But you love us anyway. And Lord, we pray that if there is anyone here today, a guest, a visitor, a relative, or someone who's just wandered in, or perhaps one that's been attending the class for some time and has never dealt with their sin, that realizes that if they were to die in this moment, they would stand before you and be worthy of condemnation, that your spirit would wrap his arms around them and introduce to them the good news that Jesus Christ took all of that sin and died on the cross to pay for it, rose again proving that that sin is paid for, and all that individual must do is believe it, accept it, and the sin is forgiven. And for those of us who have done that, Lord, thank you for this reminder in the text today. Help us not to be like the people of Nazareth, so familiar with the messenger that we're offended when the truth is spoken. Or like Antipas and Herodias, how dare someone tell us about our sin? Let's kill them. Instead, give us humble hearts willing to hear the truth regarding, regardless of the message of the messenger or of the message. Thank you that grace gives us a context by which we can live life and learn and fail and get up and go again. Thank you that you give us that uh, that grace. Help us to extend that grace to one another. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.